curious criminal case of the wife of Dr. Crippen involves a very sudden vanishing act. Dismembered body parts, a historic moment for the wireless telegraph, a missing moustache, a boat race to Canada, and an execution at Pentonville Prison, all in the very same year. Welcome to The Casual Criminalist. I'm your host, Simon. As always on this show, well, this is actually the premiere episode, so you won't know that, but uh, here, Danny writes me a script. I will read it to you. I might add some comments and uh, a few little thoughts and stuff like that. This is The Casual Criminalist. Let's jump in. Life on the foggy streets of old London town in the very early 20th century was tough in more ways than one. While all the poor people were dropping dead from whooping cough, scarlet fever, bubonic plague and rickets, the wealthier classes were facing their own set of problems, their own set of, you know... Uh, first world problems back in the uh, the early 20th century. Always a thing, apparently. The main issue was that the television hadn't been invented yet, and although newfangled cinema houses had started to open their doors for the first time in central London, it would be at least another 20 years before anybody made a film that might be worth watching. And I've seen the early some of those early movies, which are like just a few seconds long. I think the first ever movie made was called The Garden Party or something, and it's just a looping couple of seconds of people at a garden party. Film came a long way. Anyway, let's move on. On top of that, they were even starting to close down the opium dens, and you wouldn't be able to get your hands on a doner kebab until about the 1940s. Yeah, the the hard times, you know, between opium dens and doner kebabs, the worst of times. And, you know, also there were wars. So the most exciting thing you could hope to do on a typical Saturday night was snap up a ticket for a musical variety show down at a respectable venue, like the Hackney Empire. If you were lucky, you might catch a couple of banging tunes performed by the Queen of Music Hall herself, Miss Mary Lloyd. And I don't think I can play these for you because I'll get copyright claims and stuff like that. Because even though these are almost certainly out of copyright, there's going to be some company out there hoovering up the rights and uh, just making my life miserable. Well, I had to listen to these and they're really bad. (laughs) I mean, I know people had different tastes and stuff back in the day, but it's sort of like a woman who can't sing very well telling a really long story. There's no chorus or anything. There's no hook. It's just not very good. Maybe some people love musical music. Uh, I, I would describe them as people without taste. Or on a quieter night, you might get to see an escapologist, a flea circus, a talking dog, a fire eater, or an amazing feat of memory from the living encyclopedia. Yeah, none of these things are really diehard, though, are they? If you were something of a musical connoisseur, you might have become familiar with a lesser-known up-and-coming singer who went by the stage name of Belle Elmore. And in that case you'd have known to avoid that particular show like The Plague, bubonic or otherwise. Because though Belle Elmore always felt she was destined to be a star of the stage, the truth was that she had no discernible talent whatsoever, and Danny has written that in italics. So I assume she really was an absolutely talentless hack. During one performance at the Bedford and Euston Palace, where her services had been engaged for a full week, she was actually hissed off the stage by the audience on the first night. Everyone knows that hissing is worse than booing. She wasn't asked to come back the next day. No surprises there. Yet although she may have deserved a few bad reviews, Belle Elmore certainly didn't deserve the grisly fate that was said to have befallen her during the month of February in the year 1910. But did the right person hang for the crime? And why was the seemingly cut-and-dry case dug up again nearly a century later? Well, good news. You're listening, or maybe you're watching, The Casual Criminalist, and you're going to find out. 
thanks to Danny and me. Belle Elmore's real name was reported to be Corinne Cora Turner, although as she'd been married to Dr. Crippen since 1894, her name would have been Corinne Cora Crippen by the time she took to the stage in the musicals of London. Although it turns out that Corinne was never her real name either. In fact, her real name was, and this is a pronunciation nightmare, Kunigunz Makamotsky, maybe? Uh, but to make Simon's life a bit easier, thank you, Danny, always appreciated. Let's just stick to Cora Turner for the rest of this script, as that's the name she was most commonly known by anyway. I feel as soon as someone's got multiple names already, I mean, she's not the criminal today, I believe. It's got to be her husband, right? But having multiple names is always a bit sketchy. To tell the tragic story of Cora Turner, we first need to properly be introduced to the slightly peculiar-looking man that she was destined to marry. I'll throw him up on the screen now if you're if you're watching the show today where you can see him. He's a strange-looking man. He's kind of got these bulgy eyes. Maybe Danny's going to tell us all about it. Hawley Harvey Crippen was born in Coldwater, Michigan in the United States in 1862 to a comfortable family. I assume financially comfortable rather than, you know, comfortable to sit on or something like that. That was a terrible joke. <laughs> After graduating from the University of Michigan, young Crippen completed a degree from Cleveland Homeopathic Hospital and took the first of many hops across to England to improve his medical pedigree. Well, he's not started off with a very good medical pedigree, has he? Because he's done homeopathy. (laughs) I don't know. If you're listening to this show and you like homeopathy, uh, you're going to be in for a treat because I absolutely love ragging on homeopathy as hard as possible. By 1880, it's like, yeah, 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 we put a drop of this in the ocean and then we scooped out a bit of the ocean somewhere else, but it retained the memory of the magical substance. Yeah, right. By 1885, he'd acquired another diploma from the Ophthalmic Hospital in New York, and he'd set up his own medical practice in Brooklyn. Dr. Crippen married his first wife, Charlotte Bell, in Santiago in 1887, and the young couple had a son, Otto Hawley Crippen. Tragically, Charlotte Bell became ill and died suddenly just three years later. Young Otto was packed off to California to be raised by her mother, and it's believed that Dr. Crippen, uh... Oh, Charlotte Bell's mother, not Otto, was a girl because her mother. That was confusing for a second, but I'm back with it now. And it's believed that Dr. Crippen had little or no further contact with his son. A few years later, Dr. Crippen had met up with a 17-year-old girl from Brooklyn who identified herself as Cora Turner and who harbored dreams of becoming a star of grand opera. It wasn't until much later in their relationship that she revealed her real name was uh, Kunigunz Makamotsky again maybe, and that her father was a Russian Pole while her mother was German. Probably why she has such a difficult to pronounce name right there. I like Cora Turner better. And I thought, Danny, I thought we agreed we were going to stick with Cora Turner. Shortly after getting married, Dr. Crippen and his second wife took the unusual step of moving permanently to London in the year 1900. It would be the first of many quite odd decisions that Crippen would take. I say odd because Crippen had spent years earning medical qualifications. Uh, qualifications air quotes which were not considered good enough for england and were rendered useless the moment he set up home in london in other words dr Crippen could no longer run his own medical practice although he did take up a new position as a manager of dr munyan's patent medicine business an outfit which would fit go on to fight several fraud cases largely because most of their cure-all elixirs were just sugar and alcohol concoctions which I have another channel called Business Blaze. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. We talked about these cure-all, magical, 19th-century patent medicines. They just contained, like, alcohol and cocaine. But, I mean, they were awesome, but didn't really do anything. I mean, to help you medically. I'm sure they were fun. But then Dr. Crippen and Cora Turner always seemed like an odd couple in more ways than one. Crippen was a small, softly-spoken, mild-mannered man with a heavy moustache, gold-rimmed spectacles, and strangely bulbous eyes 
that's the thing you notice when you look at this dude. His eyes do kind of stick out a little bit. He kind of looked a bit like he'd unwittingly sat down on a cactus at some point, and his face had never quite recovered from the experience. If you're just listening to this in its podcast form, well, uh, you don't even need to see him anymore. He's been perfectly described. Cribbin was a regular attendee and host of high-class social events, but it always been a very quiet and unassuming presence. Although he was courteous and hospitable when required, he was largely happy to just sink into the shadows and allow his wife to bask in the limelight. In contrast, Cora Turner was a bubbly and vivacious personality with a loud Brooklyn accent. Many people described her as quite an overbearing character who wielded dominance over her unremarkable husband and was known to be openly flirtatious with other men while in the eyesight of her uncomplaining spouse. I mean, that would be, you know, I'll be a bit annoyed about that today, but in the uh, 100 years ago, it was a bit more of a thing, I'm sure. But something in the relationship seemed to be working, and Dr. Crippen showed devoted support in furthering the career of Cora, who by now had abandoned her dreams of becoming a grand opera star and set her sights a little lower on the musical stages of London. In fact, he possibly gave a little too much support. Crippen ended up getting sacked from Dr. Munyon's as they felt that he was devoting too much time to managing his wife's stage career instead of putting the hours into his day job. Yeah, I mean... Not a big surprise. He later picked up a more modest managerial role at Joet's Institution for the Deaf, I'm not sure on the pronunciation there, while continuing to act as manager for his wife, who had by now adopted the stage name of Belle Elmore. It sounds so romantic. Belle Elmore. And foreign and exciting. But uh, I think the best thing about her was probably her stage name. But the musical career was going nowhere fast. The sad truth was that Cora Turner had ambitions far beyond her meager talents. Following a couple of early disastrous high-profile appearances, the critics rather unkindly dubbed her the Brooklyn Matzo Ball. I had to Google Matzo Balls, as I've never heard of the term before. Aren't they like a thing that goes in a soup? Uh, I feel like they're Jewish, but I'm not really sure. And it, uh, so Danny googled it, and he found out that it's a big fat dumpling, which is usually plonked into lame, watery soup. I had a feeling it was put into a soup. Cora Turner was forced into more humble bookings at low-end venues, but even these became increasingly hard to source over the years. And it was during this financially difficult period that the odd couple made another odd decision. The doctor who couldn't legally practice and the musical star who couldn't get a booking decided to splash out on renting a nice new home at 39 Hilldrop Crescent, just off of Camden Road. I do wonder where they got the money for this. Like the doctor who can't doctor and the person who can't per- uh, who can't sing or whatever they do at musicals entertain uh, the semi-detached house in a nice leafy suburb was much bigger than they required and arguably more expensive than they could afford they the rent alone was over 58 pounds a year and dr crippen was only pulling in about three pounds a week from his job at the deaf institute well i don't know if that's too bad i mean so he's making 150 some pounds a year and he's spending just over a third of it on rent i mean maybe times were different back then but i feel like a third of your money on rent is, is not particularly bad today. But uh, I guess things were different back in the day. But they got around this problem by taking in lodgers to help top up the finances and keep Cora Turner in flamboyant dresses and fox furs and jewelry for all the shows that she wouldn't be performing and all the after-show parties that she wouldn't be attending because she was terrible. Also, furs are super expensive. I was in a shop the other day. It was just a big department store, and they had these furs. I have no interest in buying furs. One, I am a man. Two, I can never imagine my wife wearing anything like that. But I was like, how much are these, actually? Well, one, they were incredibly soft. And I also uh, picked up the tag, and I was like, oh, several, the equivalent of several thousand dollars. 
Oh, good. It's believed that part of the thinking behind the move to a bigger house that they couldn't really afford was so that the couple could have separate bedrooms. Okay, I mean, just sleep on the couch if you're having some troubles. But, or, you know, get. Well, this is the early 20th century. It's going to be tricky for them to get divorced. By this point, is it tricky for people to get divorced back then in England? I don't even know. I feel like I should know that. But I do know less people did it. At this point, it seems Dr. Crippen and Cora Turner were still consumed by the flames of passion. Oh, they were? Oh, <laughs> Just not for each other. Cora was openly flaunting a string of younger lovers in public, including some of the lodgers at Hilltop Crescent, before developing a long-term affair with American musical performer called Bruce Miller. Meanwhile, Dr. Crippen had fallen in love with an 18-year-old secretary who worked for him at the Deaf Institute. Ethel Leneve seemed a little more in tune with Crippen's own character than his wife. She was quiet, intelligent, and treated the doctor with respect, something he hadn't been used to for quite some time. Um, at this point, I'm, I, I do wonder why they would bar or rent a big house together i mean it does seem like you want to go your separate ways i guess he is supporting her in a musical career but he's not super successful so i mean and i assume with a string of younger lovers she's relatively attractive couldn't she find an easier person uh, a, a more successful person to pay for all of this for her interesting but despite the fact that these infidelities were never particularly well hidden from public view, Dr. Crippen and Cora Turner still strangely persevered with keeping up the appearance of a happily married couple, regularly hosting dinner parties and social events, which only thinly disguised the cracks in this clearly unhealthy relationship. It was an unhealthy relationship, though, that was about to take a drastic turn for the worse. It's getting exciting. There is going to be some crime, I promise. It's just a bit of a long build up to it anticipating the crime the background you know we want to go into depth on monday the 31st of january 1910 the crippins held a dinner party at their home in hilldrop crescent for their good friends paul and clara martinetti it largely went down well except for a small incident in which paul martinetti had asked to use the bathroom and dr crippin failed to escort his guest upstairs to show him where it was the house wasn't that big so i'm sure paul managed to eventually find the bathroom of his own accord but cora turner was furious with her husband's lapse in etiquette and berated him at the dinner table well that's inappropriate <laughs> be like how terrible you you didn't tell our guest where the bathroom was i'm going to berate you paul uh crippen whatever your first name is aside from that everyone must have been enjoying a good night of wine and whist as the martinettis didn't leave the house until 1 30 a.m it would be the last day that cora turner was seen alive oh did crippen finally snap and murder her over the next two weeks friends began to notice Cora Turner seemed to have disappeared into thin air. Dr. Crippen originally responded to polite inquiries by revealing that his wife had simply popped back over to America to spend some time with her family. It's all very convenient in the days before Facebook or whatever. Yeah, no, she's in America. It's really far away. Good luck finding out. But then his story began to take a more tragic twist. Cora had now apparently fallen gravely ill while out in the States, and the outlook wasn't good. It definitely sounds like he's spinning the story ready for, uh, you know, to never be seen again and that she somehow mysteriously died at some point and hopefully no one will ever put it together and Dr. Crippen will carry on with his life without his mean wife. Finally, he composed a series of letters on black-edged paper to close friends in which he broke the sad news that his wife had passed away from pleuro-pneumonia. In one such letter to their friends Robert and Louise Mills, he wrote, Imagine, if you can, the dreadful shock to me, never more to see my Cora alive, nor hear her voice again. Dude, it doesn't sound like you're going to miss her very much. She sounds like she was really mean. <laughs> she berated you at the dinner table because you didn't show the guests where the bathroom was. She is being sent back 
and I shall soon have what is left of her. Of course I am giving up the house. In fact, it drives me mad being in it alone. I will sell everything. I do not know what I shall do. Probably find some business to take me traveling for a few months until I can recover from the shock. As soon as I have settled a dress, I will write again to you as it is so terrible to me to have to write this dreadful news. Will you please tell all the friends of our loss? With love to you all, I will write again soon and give my address from Dr. Crippen. Okay, this all sounds relatively believable. Like if I were the friends, you'd be like, okay, you know, it'd be a bit weird if I asked to see the body. Uh, this explanation didn't appear to convince everyone, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I'm just not curious enough. I'd be like, okay, Doc, I mean, that's sad. Uh, you know, sorry to hear. But let's see what happens. Shortly afterwards, Crippen's young secretary lover, Ethel Leneve, moved into Holtrop Crescent, and the pair were often seen out and about in town. It's possible they may have checked out a few musical shows now that the infamously terrible Bella Moore appeared to have been removed from the bills. Yeah, they were probably pleased about that as well. But old friends were particularly displeased to see Ethel Naviv was wearing some of Cora Turner's old fur coats and jewelry, including a particularly distinctive and expensive brooch. Considering his wife had only been dead for a few weeks, this seemed to be in quite poor taste. Agreed. Hold off the, like, fancy coats, Ethel. You know, it doesn't look good. Even if, even if she was actually dead, that's not a good look. A number of old friends, including the Martinettis and a musical strongwoman who went by the stage name Volcana, eventually approached the police with concerns about not feeling entirely satisfied with Dr. Griffin's explanation of the fate of Cora Turner. It's possible that Paul Martinetti was just fuming about not being escorted to the bathroom at that dinner party. <laughs> that poor guy. How did he ever manage? He ended up peeing in a corner. The matter was overseen by Chief Inspector Walter Dew, a highly respected figure approaching retirement who had previously worked as a detective constable during the Jack the Ripper investigations of 1888. Well, that's quite some pedigree right there. Although they never caught him, so, I mean, I guess less so. <laughs> he felt that he had heard enough to warrant a closer look at the case of the vanishing musical flop, and in his police report he noted, It will be gathered from the foregoing that there are most extraordinary contradictions in the story told by Crippen, who is an American citizen, as is Mrs. Crippen, otherwise known as Belle Elmore. Without adopting the suggestion made by her friends as to foul play, I do think that the time has now arrived when Dr. Crippen should be seen by us and asked to give an explanation as to when and how Mrs. Crippen left the country and the circumstances under which she died. Just a personal note here, the, uh, the letter from Dr. Crippen, who is a doctor, is much harder to read and the grammar seems much worse than the uh, the english from this police detective or constable or whoever this chap is right now that was easy to read comparatively especially for early 20th century english which is usually a bit of a nightmare on the 8th of july chief inspector dew and sergeant mitchell visited dr crippen at his home on hilldrop crescent intriguingly the reports noted the presence of ethel leneve and described her as the doctor's housekeeper even more intriguingly dr crippen made a surprise opening confession to the police he said i suppose i had better tell the truth all my stories about her illness and death are untrue so far as i know she is not dead at all what are you doing doc <laughs> Okay, so it basically seems that they didn't believe the first story. So it's just like, oh, let's just try something else and make up an excuse. It actually seems like quite a good idea. A sympathetic chief inspector, Dew, was shown around the property by Crippen and his housekeeper and seemed to find the new version of the story believable. Also, it worked. He advised Crippen that it would be helpful if Coratana was traced so the story could be confirmed, and Crippen agreed to place advertisements in American newspapers which would request that his wife make contact. At this point, it's entirely possible that no further action would have been taken if Dr. Crippen had just stayed put for a while. But Dr. Crippen was about to make another bad decision. 
Seems like he's made a string of bad decisions, really. Gripped by panic, he and Ethel Naviv packed their bags and scarped to Canada. Purely by chance, Chief Inspector Dew returned to Hilltrop Crescent just a couple of days later to confirm the date of Cora Turner's departure, and his nose started twitching in suspicion when he found an empty and abandoned house. Yeah, again, like wearing the furs. This isn't a good look. Just wait. Just wait. There's no rush. There's no rush. No one's coming for you. No one's thinking that you murdered your wife. But you have to make them think that you did, didn't you? Although he had previously been leaning towards the idea that Crippen's story might be true, it now seemed that Crippen had fled the scene with a particularly prickly conscience. Chief Inspector Dew immediately ordered a complete search of the property, and it was while he and Sergeant Mitchell were probing around in the coal cellar Oh, there's nothing ever good in the coal cellar. <laughs> they made a very disturbing discovery. If, I, if you're dist- disposing of a body, I mean, don't do it in the cellar. Every serial killer ever disposes the bodies it's either in the woods or in the cellar so uh think of other put it in the attic it might smell bad though it had appeared that they had found all that remained of cora turner in his police report chief inspector Dew revealed that on tuesday the 13th of july i made further examination of the house and i again searched the coal cellar the coal cellar had a brick floor there was a small quantity of coal there and also a little rubbish cuttings from small branches of trees an old chandelier and such things as that i went down with sergeant mitchell on my knees and probed about with a small poker which i had got out of the kitchen i found that the poker went in somewhat easily between the crevices of the bricks and i managed to get one or two up and then several others came up pretty easily i then produced a spade from the garden and dug the clay that was immediately under the bricks after digging down to a depth of four spadefuls i came across what appeared to be human remains there was actually very little left of cora turner at all save for a few pieces of flesh the body was headless and most of the limbs and bones had been removed except for a small chunk of thigh well, this went from, like, husband murdering his wife and getting rid of the body in the coal cellar to a lot more like Ed Gein. It got weird. Traces of the calming drug hyacine were found in what was left of the body. Following analysis, it was confirmed that the human remains belonged to a female, and later down the line, a small piece of skin from the abdomen helped to officially identify the victim as Cora Turner, who it appeared had been first poisoned and then filleted. Lovely. Uh, it was time to have another word in the ears of Dr. Crippen and his housekeeper if they could ever be found. The gruesome discovery hit the headlines of the UK press and descriptions of the two fugitives were widely circulated. It's interesting to note just how vividly these descriptions were composed. Far more imaginative than anything you'd find in modern-day investigations. The two descriptions pulled from the police reports uh, were published in the Times as Dr. Crippen was described as an American doctor, age 50, rather straggly, long sandy moustache, false teeth, rather slovenly appearance, shows his teeth much when talking, throws his feet out when walking. All of this is very specific, but no one thought to mention his bulgy eyes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ethel Naviv was, age 27, will go as Crippen's wife, complexion pale, large grey eyes, good teeth, good-looking, pleasant appearance, quiet, subdued manner, walks slowly, looks intently when in conversation. These are, I mean, <laughs> Danny writes here, you get the impression that the writer of these reports was a frustrated author. I'm inclined to agree. Slovenly appearance being uh, particularly good there. So just how far had the feet-throwing doctor and his intently staring girlfriend got? Dr. Griffin and Ethel Aviv had traveled to Antwerp, and from there they had bought tickets for passage to Canada 
on the ocean liner SS Montreuse. In a burst of creative ingenuity, they did something that I thought people only did in films. They traveled as father and son and had the 27-year-old Ethel dress up as a young boy. You can understand why they thought that a cunning disguise might be in order, as they must have suspected their descriptions would now be reading matter at every British breakfast table. Also, Danny mentions there about the women dressing up as boys. I thought this only worked in movies because... You know, in movies, people suspend their disbelief and it's like, well, that person's clearly a woman and uh, no one else can spot it except for, you know, the, 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 the entire audience. I don't know. This doesn't seem like a good idea because if anything's going to draw suspicion, it's going to be like this father and son and the son's a bit like a woman. Anyway, moving on. For his own part, Dr. Crippen had shaved off his distinctive mustache and decided to grow a beard instead. That sounds like a more traditional and good idea. Yeah, why not? But you can't help thinking that dressing up a woman as a young boy creates its own set of problems, and there are always going to be several clues that something's not quite right with this picture. No shit. Nevertheless, this was the strategy they adopted. After boarding the SS Montreux to Canada, it wasn't long before the captain of the vessel began to get a little suspicious. It's interesting to ponder that if the pair of fugitives had traveled second class, they would have probably escaped the scrutiny of Captain Henry Kenzel. Ah, oh, they couldn't help themselves. They had to go first class, didn't they? I thought they didn't have any money. They must have gotten some money from somewhere because I I did a video on another channel I do about the Titanic and the prices of the tickets in first class across the Atlantic were wildly expensive. I mean, insanely, like the modern equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars. But Cribbin's assistance on traveling first class had brought them to the attention of the captain who liked to mingle with his first class guests and who was also keeping abreast of the news back in London with the aid of the incredible new wireless telegraphy system that had been installed on the ship. In his captain's log, Kendall noted that the man on board the Montreuse answers all the descriptions given in the police report, does also his companion, Miss Laneve. So the disguise obviously wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> the boy matches all the descriptions of this uh, this this female criminal from London. My suspicion was aroused by seeing them on deck beside a boat. Laneve squeezed Crippen's hand immoderately. It seemed to me <laughs> the squeezing of a hand could only be immoderate in the early 20th century. It seemed to me unnatural for two males, so I suspected them at once. Laneve had the manner and appearance of a very refined, modest girl. She does not speak much, but always wears a pleasant smile. She seems thoroughly under his thumb, and he will not leave her for a moment. Her suit is anything but a good fit. Her trousers are very tight about her hips and are split a bit down the back and secured with large safety pins. He continually shaves his upper lip and his beard is growing nicely. I often see him stroking it and seeming pleased, looking more like a farmer every day. This guy sees straight through it. I knew the disguises would be a bad idea. I told Crippen a story to make him laugh heartily to see if he would open his mouth wide enough for me to ascertain if he had false teeth. The ruse was successful. <laughs> this guy's like Captain Detective. All the boys' manners at the table when I was watching him were most ladylike, handling knife and fork and taking fruit off dishes with two fingers. Crippen kept cracking nuts for her and giving her half his salad and was always paying her the most marked attention. He would often sit on deck and look up aloft at the wireless aerial and listen to the crackling electric spark messages being sent by the Marconi operator. He said, what a wonderful invention it is. I get the feeling that he is very soon not going to think that it is such a wonderful invention when, I'm guessing, possible spoiler alert, it's going to be responsible for his capture. It certainly was. 
a wonderful invention, but Crippen may not have appreciated the technology so much if he had known how Captain Kendall intended to use it. On the afternoon of Friday the 22nd of July, just before sailing out of range of the land-based transmitters, Kendall telegraphed a historic message to Scotland Yard by Morse code. The exact message read, Have strong suspicions that Crippen, London, Cellular, Murderer, and Accomplice are among saloon passengers. Moustache taken off. Growing beard. Accomplice dressed as boy. Manner and build. Undoubtedly a girl. Oh my god, that must have taken forever in Moscow's. <laughs> Chief Inspector Walter Dew knew at this point that the race was on to intercept the SS Montreux before the fugitives could disembark. And it turned out to be quite handy that the much faster White Star liner SS Laurentic was soon to set sail from Liverpool, England, and overtake the SS Montreux on a long voyage to Canada. It's worth noting at this point that Crippen had made yet another odd decision by not traveling directly to the United States of America, where an arrest would have been long delayed by international arrest warrants and extradition proceedings, which which would have been further complicated by the fact that he was a U.S. citizen. Back in 1910, Canada was still a Crown Dominion, and Chief Inspector Dew was well within his rights to make an arrest on Canadian waters, which were still considered within the bounds of the British Empire. The SS Montreux sailed into St. Lawrence River on the 31st of July. Chief Inspector Dew and his officers came aboard the vessel disguised as pilots, and Captain Kendall invited Dr. Crippen along in order to say hello to the aviators. From his own 1938 memoirs, Chief Inspector Dew reported the details of the encounter counter thusly i said good morning dr crippen i'm chief inspector dew he said good morning mr dew i said you will be arrested for the murder and mutilation of your wife cora crippen in london on or about the 2nd of february last he said i am not sorry the anxiety has been too much old crippen took it quite well he was always a bit of a philosopher though he could not have helped being astounded to see me on board that boat he was quite a likable chap in his way yeah i can imagine this like, if you've murdered someone and you're kind of of an anxious disposition, it's going to be pretty hard to not think of that a lot of the time and feel guilty about it. I mean, if you're not a complete psycho. The likable philosopher and his young boy were escorted back to London, where it was decided they would face trial separately. The trial of Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen began at the Old Bailey on the 18th of November 1910 and would last just five days. The prosecution proved beyond reasonable doubt that the remains of the flesh of Cora Turner had been shown to contain traces of hyacinth, a poison which Dr. Crippen had ordered from Lewis and Burroughs' shop in New Oxford Street just a couple of weeks prior to Cora's disappearance. Doesn't look good, does it, Doc? The order of five grains had been so unusually large that the shop had needed to place a special order with the wholesalers before Crippen could collect it a few days later. The body of Cora Turner had been identified by a small scar on a piece of lower abdomen originally caused by an abdominal operation which matched up with Cora's own medical records. But perhaps the most compelling of all, the human remains had been wrapped in a pajama jacket which was proved to belong to Dr. Crippen. Dude, you're a terrible murderer. Like, how did you get away with it for so long? <laughs> This is fairly conclusive evidence. I'm going to guess that you're going to get hung, I guess, was how they kill people back then. The label on the pajama jacket led to the manufacturers Jones Brothers of Holloway, who confirmed that the material was first acquired by the firm in 1908, and a delivery of three such sets of pajamas were delivered to 39 Hilltop Crescent in January 1909. The prosecution alleged that Dr. Crippen had first poisoned his wife, then professionally removed her bones and limbs, which he later burned in the kitchen stove. Okay, so he went to a lot of effort to really dispose of the body carefully, and then he got his own pajamas, wrapped her in them, and as we discussed, hid her hid her body in the most obvious place in his house, the coal cellar. <laughs> 
Okay, Dr. Crippen, you're sounding a little bit crazy. He then dissolved her organs in a bathtub full of acid and disposed of some of the other bits while he was out on jolly day trips. It was speculated that he placed her head in a handbag, which he merrily tossed overboard into the sea during a documented boat trip to France. So why didn't you get rid of her whole body, Doc? Crippen maintained his innocence throughout the trial. During cross-examination, he was asked why he appeared to admit guilt and anxiety upon his arrest by Chief Inspector Dew. Yeah, because he admitted to doing it on the boat. Uh, to which he replied, I expected to be arrested from all these lies I had told. I thought probably it would cast such a suspicion on me and perhaps that they would keep me in prison for I do not know how long, perhaps for a year, until they found the missing woman. Lenive was living with me and she had told her people that she was married to me and it would put her in a terrible position. The only thing I could think of was to take her away out of the country where she would not have this scandal thrown upon her. His defense was that the body found in the cellar must have been there long before he and his wife moved into Hilldrop Crescent. But of course, this wasn't a particularly strong defense. Of course it wasn't. Your pa- she was The body was wrapped in your pajamas, dude. Come on. Um, is it a bit, yeah, as Danny says, but of course it wasn't a particularly strong defense when it had just been confirmed that the pajama jacket had just been had been manufactured long after Crippen and his wife had moved in. The jury took 27 minutes to reach a unanimous guilty verdict. No surprises there. And I imagine most of that time was spent sorting out the problem with an order for tea and biscuits. Yeah, they, I mean, unless we're going to discover something else in this episode, seems pretty damn cut and dry. That evidence is uh, fairly overwhelming there, Doc. During the final sentencing, the Lord Chief Justice Richard Everard Webster declared, Holy Harvey Crippen, you have been convicted upon evidence which could leave no doubt on the minds of any reasonable man that you cruelly poisoned your wife, that you concealed your crime, you mutilated her body, and disposed piecemeal of her remains. It was further established that as soon as suspicion was aroused, you fled from justice and took every measure to conceal your flight. On the ghastly and wicked nature of the crime, I will not dwell. I have now to pass upon you the sentence of the court, which is that you be taken from hence to a lawful prison, and from thence to a place of execution, and that you shall be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul. This feels so old school, and you see it in movies all the time, where they're like, to be hanged by the neck until he's dead. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. And then he bangs a gavel, and the person's like, oh no. That's bad. Ethel and Eve was tried four days later and found not guilty as an accessory to murder. She settled down in Croydon, married a clerk, had several children, and seemingly led a relatively normal and happy life until her death in 1967 at the age of 84. Which, when you think about this whole story and it being like early 20th century, the telegraph being used for the first time, 1967 doesn't seem like that long ago. Dr. Chris, 20 years before I was born. Dr. Crippen was hanged at Pentonville Prison in July on November the 23rd, 1910. His final request was to have a photograph of his lover, Ethel Naviv, buried with him in his unmarked grave, and it was granted. Dr. Crippen had gone down in history as the first criminal to be captured by the aid of wireless te- technology, so it wasn't all bad news. Well, it definitely was for him, <laughs> but not for the rest of us. Um, but I get the feeling there's more to it, because I see here there's still three more pages to go, so something else happens. And at the beginning, Danny said that uh, 
maybe the wrong person hung for the crime, so let's find out, shall we? Not everyone agreed with the verdict, though, and there were some controversial points raised after Crippen's execution. Most notably, a series of letters to Dr. Crippen were uncovered in the police and court archives, which purported to be from Cora Turner herself long after she had supposedly been murdered. In one of them, the author of the letter says, I don't want to be responsible for your demise if I can save you in this way, but I will never come forward personally as I am happy now. The letters were deemed as hoaxes by investigators, but they were never passed on to Crippen's defense team. Decades later, the American-British crime novelist and screenwriter Raymond Chandler observed how the murder didn't appear to make any kind of sense. Okay, I mean, it seems, I guess, Raymond Chandler, he's a novelist and screenwriter, he thinks outside of the box. I apparently don't, because I'm like, well, he seems pretty guilty. In his view, most poisoners are keen to obtain a certification of death by natural causes. Why on earth would Dr. Crippen go to the trouble of poisoning his victim first, only to then dismember the corpse? I'd say probably because he's a bit of a coward. Like, he's a very, you know, his wife is the domineering one. And I think generally, if, you know, my knowledge from watching too much CSI is that the wife, women usually poison men. I, I think that statistically is borne out. But, you know, that's often because the women can't overpower the men. But in this relationship, I would say that his wife was the one who was really, you know, the dominant one in the relationship. And uh, the doctor was more of a coward. So I would say my personal opinion would be like it's kind of a, a way to poison someone without over violence. And then he did the violence afterwards when she was dead. My theory. My theory. I'm not Raymond Chandler, though. And why would he have only disposed of certain parts of the body, but quite happily left the rest of it not particularly well hidden in his coal cellar? Yeah, I also brought that up. It is quite bizarre. As recently as 2007, the case has been revisited by forensic scientist Dr. David Foran from Michigan State University, who seems convinced of Crippen's innocence. Ooh, how interesting. Maybe he's got some science. Dr. Foran claims that the surgery scar found on the piece of lower abdomen, which supposedly identified the corpse as Cora Turner, was nothing more than a fold in the skin, and the body may have even been male. He also claims to have tracked down three great nieces of Cora Turner and compared their DNA with a century-old tissue sample taken from Crippen's cellar, concluding that the DNA doesn't match. More importantly, I mean, you could definitely tell from DNA whether someone's male or female, so why didn't he just work out whether it was an XX or an XY chromosome? That sounds very strange. But that is also very strange that the DNA doesn't match. Could have been someone else. I mean, but then there's also the possibility that maybe she wasn't someone's daughter. Maybe she was adopted and no one knew. This is a little bit more. Maybe there was something, you know, with the DNA of the descendants. I'd say that's very um, not 100% conclusive. That's what I'll say. My guess. His claims have been met with skepticism by his peers, but the theories continue to fly thick and fast on the potential alternative identity of the body in the cellar. One notion is that during a financially difficult period, Crippen was performing illegal abortions and the human remains were the tragic remnants of a procedure that went horribly wrong. Ah, uh, ah, uh, yeah, but then removing the head and the legs and filleting and dissolving the organs and stuff, I mean, that doesn't seem like the, the work of someone who's not a little bit angry at the person that they're they're dissolving in his final letter to ethel naviv shortly before his execution dr crippen wrote face to face with god i believe that the facts will be forthcoming to prove my innocence but it would be far-fetched to assume that dr crippen has no blood on his hands a body was found in his coal cellar wrapped in garments that were clearly proven to belong to him yes 
This was around the same time that a loud and flamboyant failure of the musicals completely vanished without a trace and was never seen again. Even in the highly unlikely event that it is proven that the body does not belong to Cora Turner, this would only seem to suggest that perhaps she wasn't Dr. Crippen's only victim. It's still fascinating to ponder how things may have turned out very differently if Dr. Crippen hadn't made those string of bad decisions. If he hadn't panicked and fled to Canada, Chief Inspector Walter Dew may never have felt it necessary to search Hilltop Crescent. If he hadn't traveled first class on the SS Montrose, he may never have caught the attention of Captain Kendall. If he hadn't dressed Ethel Navid as a boy, they might never have stuck out like a pair of turkey drumsticks on a platter of ribs. Yeah, it's all true. I mean, and it makes you really think, like, imagine how many people get away with this just because they don't make silly mistakes like this. Over a century later, the image of Dr. Crippen and his weirdly googly eyes continues to scare old pensioners and give nightmares to children. For a staggering 106 years, a waxwork of Dr. Crippen was on display in the Chamber of Horrors in Madame Tussauds in London, along with such historical villains as Adolf Hitler, Guy Fawkes, Genghis Khan, Vlad the Impaler, and Yoko Ono. <laughs> if you get that joke, uh, you're a fan of my other channel, Business Blaze. Uh, thank you for coming over to this new channel and watching this far into the video, not listening this far into the podcast. Um, if you're not a fan of Business Blaze and you would like to see me make fun of Yoko Ono extensively and for long periods of time, definitely go uh, check out Business Blaze. The waxwork of Dr. Cribbin survived the Dogger Bank earthquake of 1931, the strongest earthquake ever recorded in the UK, although its head fell off and needed to be repaired. If a couple of arms and legs had fallen off too, it might have proved a fitting tribute to the London cellar murderer. Indeed. And uh, that's where we end the uh, the main part of the content today but there are some dismembered appendix appendices which uh, danny has added for us so we can go through these not like uh his sources or anything just uh, extra little facts number one 39 hilltop crescent was for a time described as the most famous house in london but the property no longer exists i'd say the most famous house in london has to be 10 downing street right where the prime minister lives the house was completely destroyed by german air raids during the second world war Oh, the Second World War, destroying so much of London's architecture. Number two, Chief Inspector Walter Dew retired from active duty just a few weeks before Dr. Crippen was hanged. Some believe that he had become quite friendly with Crippen. Well, he did say he was, he was what, friendly or nice in his own way? Um, and he quit his job after feeling sorrowful about the fate of the man he had helped catch. But that sounds a little fanciful as Chief Inspector Dew was approaching retirement age anyway, and he seemed happy enough to revisit the case in his 1938 memoirs entitled I Caught Crippen. Yeah, that doesn't sound like the man who became friends with him and uh, regretted getting him caught, does it? Number three, if you ever fancy popping into Barcelona's Automaton Museum, you're in for a treat. Am I? I mean, I wasn't, but now I want to go to Barcelona to the Automaton Museum. How exciting. The museum is home to an execution of Crippen novelty machine, first designed in 1921 and is still in work in order. What? Simply pop a coin into the slot and witness the little plastic figures inside the machine accurately recreate the moment that the gallows fell on Dr. Crippen. More probably, probably more value for money than those scammy claw crane machines where it costs you a ton of money not to win a cuddly smurf and that's where we end the casual criminalist today this was our pilot episode the first one ever um it's the end of the show now so i'll take a few moments to just tell you about it it's a longer form show we're doing a youtube version a podcast version of course if you've got suggestions as well for criminals that you would like us to cover on the show we can do that i probably should have also explained that the big microphone at the beginning in case you're watching this on youtube it's because it delivers much better sound quality which is important for people who are consuming this as a podcast or if you're listening to this on youtube well you just get to enjoy the richness of my voice in all its glory. 
I'm just joking. But um, yeah, thank you for watching The Casual Criminalist. Please leave a comment below if you're watching this. Please do uh, leave us a review if you're getting this in its podcast format. And we'll see you next time. Oh, we plan this to be a weekly show, so uh, do subscribe. Thank you for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.